The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, I'm joined by Court TV anchor Michael Ayala with continuing coverage of the two murder trials that have gripped the nation. First up, we head to Kenosha, where the jury heard testimony from the only survivor of the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting. Then we'll examine opening statements in the killing of Ahmad Arbery murder trial. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinny Politan. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening and downloading the Court TV podcast and at our network, Court TV. This is pretty much an amazing little run we have going on right now. Um, two very high profile, big time, important trials taking place simultaneously. Uh, one is taking place in Brunswick, Georgia. It's the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery murder trial. Three defendants in that case. Um, and then we've got a case in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where we have three shooting victims and one defendant. His name is Kyle Rittenhouse. He shot three people during the riots in the summer of 2020. Two of them died, but one of them survived and took the stand for the prosecution. I want to bring in my colleague, Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor, whose program is on uh, right before mine every night from six to eight on uh, Court TV, of course. Uh, Michael, uh, thanks so much. Great to see you. Um, Your thoughts about being in the middle of these two cases, which sort of came about around the same time, but um, seem to be somewhat different in many, many respects. It's, it's an embarrassment of riches. I mean, it's this. This is uh, you've said it many times. This is what we love to do, and the fact that we have two incredible cases, cases with um, social implications, cases that people are very much interested interested in airing right here on Court TV, uh, really means a lot to us both. I know uh, this is really a great time for me. That um, they're similar in some ways, different in others. They both have a video um, at the center of both cases. Um, Something that is, I think, indicative of the times that we're in, um, you know, for years you get these types of trials and th- there wasn't this type of evidence. And, uh, you know, the juries would have to sift through different types of testimony uh, from different areas, trying to piece together what happened here. They can actually see what happened. And that affects the way trials are are tried and the strategy that goes into the trials. So it's made it's made for some really interesting stuff. Absolutely. But what's amazing to me about these two cases, and you mentioned they're so video driven uh, in the Kenosha case, there are cameras everywhere. So there's a lot of different videos in, in the case where Ahmaud Arbery was shot and killed. There's really one video of the shooting itself. There are other videos that the defense is going to try to use, but the, the video of the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery in both cases, the videos exist. They're relatively clear but they're grainy enough and obscured enough that that it's not it's not 1000% the whole story in either one i think i think there's a little bit of room for interpretation gray area and some things that you don't exactly see and let's begin in kenosha because there are now new drone videos of one of the sh- of the, of the shootings there's videos of the other shootings But then you have Gage Grosskreutz, who is the surviving victim, even though you can't call him a victim in the courtroom. I'm going to call him a shooting victim. He was shot. His bicep was uh, 
obliterated. Uh, he survived, but he's a shooting victim nonetheless. Um, so he took the stand. And, and give me, from your perspective, because uh, I'll tell you what I think in just a minute, but from your perspective, was this what you were expecting from the star witness for the prosecution? And we'll begin with direct. Let's begin with direct, though, Michael, because I see you grimacing. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, you know, when you when you say star witness, Vinny, um, the first thing you think about is a witness that is going to provide uh, the smoking gun in your case or provide information um, for your case that is going to, at least from theoretically before you get into cross, is going to lock up your case, right? So I even hesitate to call him a star witness. Um, th this is a very flawed witness. And oftentimes when you have cases, you'll have witnesses who are flawed, who have a lot of things either in their background or things that they're involved in that may undercut their credibility. This guy had a lot of that. He came across well on the stand. But the story that he had to tell, um, I don't know if it qualifies for the moniker star witness. The story he had to tell for me didn't lock up the prosecution's case in any way, shape, or form. Um, he's talking about their confrontation. He's talking about coming across um, Kyle Rittenhouse and essentially giving information that's very helpful to the defense's case throughout. Then we get to the actual confrontation between the two of them, and, and the young man has a gun, which we'll find out later wasn't a legal gun. Um, and the way the entire situation went down, it contains some nuance. And you're asking this jury to make some pretty strong suppositions about what's happening between the two of them to reach the conclusion that Kyle wasn't acting in self-defense. So again, there is a version of his story that I think the, the jury can take and say, hmm, maybe he wasn't acting in self-defense. Maybe this young man feared for his life. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't have to shoot uh, the uh, Gage Grosskreutz. Maybe he did. But again, it just didn't rise to the level that at least I expected from this particular witness. Now, this is the third shooting victim in, in chronological order. Joseph Rosenbaum is the first. Then the second two are, are much more close in time as uh, Rittenhouse is walking down this Sheridan Avenue down the middle of Kenosha. Um, and Anthony Huber is the second one who was shot. He is the one who has a skateboard in his hand. And there's photos that the jury has seen of him hitting Kyle Rittenhouse in the head or neck area with the skateboard uh, as he's being shot or just before he's being shot. And then you have Gage Grosskreutz, who's the third one. And, and the big problem that he had is that he had a gun, Michael. He he had a gun in his hand, and the gun was pointed at Kyle Rittenhouse. He does. Um, I think what's what's important, and I think what the prosecution is going to have to do in their closing arguments, um, is really bring out that this. These incidents, as they happen, beginning with Joseph Rosenbaum, continuing on through Anthony Huber and Gage Grosskreutz, is a continuum of events, beginning with, a, with decisions made by Kyle Rittenhouse that 
created a dangerous situation because we find out that Gage Grosskreutz comes across um, Kyle long before the actual confrontation, before Anthony Huber is shot, just after Joseph Rosenbaum is shot. And he begins to follow him. And there's some question as to why he's following him. Is he chasing him? Uh, he claims he's following him. He doesn't really know why. At some point, he decides to continue following him or going in the same direction as him because he hears a call for a medic that's brought out on redirect. But at the end of the day, when you think about what's in Kyle Rittenhouse's mind, he just sees this guy following him and a gun is visible in his hand. So he doesn't know exactly why he's following him. And eventually there is that confrontation. Now, the key part as far as the individual confrontation between Grosskreutz and Rittenhouse is when Gage Grosskreutz says he actually, yes, he does have a gun in his hand, but he's putting his hands up in surrender. And once he does that, he sees Kyle Rittenhouse re-rack the gun. He makes the assumption in his mind, because he is he's familiar with guns, that he had already taken a shot. So he's re-racking the gun to take another one. So he was not accepting his surrender. And that's when he decides to protect himself by pointing the gun at uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. But he says he had no intention of killing anyone. That's not his philosophy in life. He doesn't believe in taking lives. So they, the, the state wants the jury to believe that that split second decision by Kyle Rittenhouse removes, um, you know, his his thought process that perhaps he was under attack by someone with a gun. I believe that that's a stretch, Finney. It, it's it's difficult because we do know. Uh, from the opening statement of the defense, that they're going to bring in an expert to talk about the time and the decision making in these, you know, seconds that you have to make these decisions. Uh, very difficult to uh, uh, expect someone to make, you know, these very reasoned decisions in the amount of time that Kyle Rittenhouse had to make decisions. And the burden's on the prosecution. You've got to prove uh, murder. And you've got to disprove self-defense to, to to in front of this jury. On some level, I mean, justification does put some burden on the defense. Yeah, but the burden of proof never shifts. It never shifts. To no, defense. it doesn't you, shift completely. Doesn't shift, absolutely does not. not shift. So I want to play for the folks at home that, that moment you just um, talked about, because it is very, very significant, and it's the only chance, I agree with you, the only chance that prosecutors have as it, as it goes to the uh, charges involving the shooting, not the shooting death, but the shooting of Gage Grosskreutz. Here's his testimony. You raised your hands like this. You saw the defendant re-rack the weapon? Correct. What did you think was going to happen? In my experiences and in my inference uh, in that moment, after the defendant had pointed his weapon at me and I had put my hands in the air, re-racking the weapon in my mind meant that the defendant pulled the trigger while my hands were in the air, but the gun didn't fire. So then by re-racking the weapon, I inferred that the defendant wasn't accepting my surrender. That would be a great argument if Gage Grosskreutz was on trial for the murder of Kyle Rittenhouse and had shot him. Because he's what he's kind of explaining is self-defense. The problem is, as I see it, in that situation, in the chaos that was Kenosha that night, 
Um, both parties are almost in the same position at the moment where their guns are pointed at one another. Neither one knows what the other one is going to do. They both have some level of fear. And from my perspective and my reading of the language, you cannot, uh, you would not be able to prove murder for either if, if in fact, Grosskreutz had shot Rittenhouse and killed him or Rittenhouse had shot Grosskreutz and killed him or injured him. Either way, uh, to me, it's self-defense for both and because of the, the chaos of Kenosha. And that is a nightmare for prosecutors, Michael. It is. And that's why I go back to, I think they're going to have to really craft a well-done closing. Because I believe where the best um, argument for them lies, because I, 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 can't, I can't say that these prosecutors looked at these tapes and thought that they were going to win based on what we're talking about. I mean, I agree with you 100%. Those situations, uh, specifically the one with Gage Goldskreutz and Joseph Rosenbaum, are very difficult situations to suggest how Rittenhouse you know, killed them and, and did not feel some sense of needing to protect himself. Again, uh, in, the, in Joseph Rosenbaum's case, he's unarmed. So there's a question there. But again, there's, there's this idea that he went for the gun. Um, but let's stick to Gage Grosskreutz. But what I think ultimately the, the state's going to have to do is suggest that, again, it was, an, it was a situation that was created by Kyle Rittenhouse, by all the decisions that he made to show up in with Wisconsin, from Illinois, to have this gun when he was just uh, 17 years old and it was illegal for him to have this gun, to be on the scene. There was some testimony um, that he had been waving the gun around. Um, the fact that he created the situation and the folks who chased him after he left the car source parking lot in the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum believed that he was someone who was an active shooter. That's what Gage Grosskreutz testified to. And they were actually acting as heroes trying to stop someone who they believed had been shooting people. Um, and therefore, they, Kyle cannot avail himself of the justification defense. He cannot avail himself of self-defense because he created that situation. And what happened between Gage Grosskreutz and him uh, was just a continuum of a larger issue that he created. That's the only place I can see the prosecution can go. Yeah. And, that, and I think it's a tough sell. Very tough sell. Uh, Very I, tough I think sell. It's a really tough sell because who's creating all the chaos in Kenosha? I mean, uh, you've got Joseph Rosenbaum, the first shooting victim who is confronting people, blurting out the N-word. He is setting fire, dumpsters on fire. He's threatening people. He's, he's telling uh, people that if I get you alone, I'm going to kill you. And then he's the one who ultimately chases Kyle Rittenhouse. So um, then you look at the, the crowd. Once Kyle Rittenhouse fires the weapon and kills Rosenbaum, he is then um, going down Sheridan Avenue, walking towards police at the end of the street and tells Grosskreutz that I'm going to the police. But that doesn't stop Grosskreutz from from continuing to follow him and, and have people go after him. So none of it makes any sense. I mean, if you look at this. Well, and, you know, Grosskreutz, Vinnie, Grosskreutz said he didn't understand him. OK. He didn't understand. He thought he said something else. He, th he thought he said, I'm working with the police. You know, that, that was his testimony. So we'll take him at his word, uh, you know, whatever let, let's that talk is. talk about oh, his, word, his credibility. Though. His credibility was wrecked <laughs> on, on cross. So I don't know if we can do that. But he did say he misunderstood him. but his 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 word from jump street in this case i always want to say that from jump street was he didn't tell police he had a gun 
He did not tell police he had a gun. No, he didn't. And then he he's filed he a didn't. $10 million lawsuit against the city of Kenosha. And I know he's been harmed and maybe he'll get some money from him. I don't know. If I was a city of Kenosha, I wouldn't pay him a dime. Um, but did not mention, did not mention in his civil filing against the city of Kenosha that he was in fact armed. And as you mentioned, Michael, he was illegally armed. He had a concealed weapon. You know, we make a big thing of all these people who are carrying these guns out in the open. Well, that's how you have to carry them unless you have a special license for a concealed weapon, which is what Grosskreutz had. And his license for the concealed carry was not valid. So he was illegally carrying a concealed weapon that night. And and so every all the every, everything that that prosecutors and all the guests on my show point to every night, all the criminal defense attorneys who attack the criminal defendant in this case, um, point out is that he shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have had a gun. Where's his mother? Okay, that's fine and good, but this is a self-defense case. Can we focus on... And they never focus on the law and the elements and the, and the scene because they're so outraged that he's carrying a gun because many of but them... What, what they're saying, Vinny, is what I said earlier. This is not really a self-defense case because he created the situation, doesn't have a right to use self-defense. That's where they're going. Just one thing, and I want to bring this out because uh, we all know that you're my prosecutor friend, my, my one prosecutor friend. Um, the one you talked about all the things that came out on the uh, cross of Gage Grosskreutz about the gun, about the, the law, the ten million dollar lawsuit, the fact that he didn't mention in the lawsuit that he had a gun, the fact that he lied to police that he even had a gun. He said it fell out of his pants. None of that, Vinny. None of that was brought out by the prosecution. I know. If you got bad facts like that, Vinny, and you're a prosecutor, don't you bring that out? Yes. On your direct, so that the the, the defense can't bring it out like it's some gotcha moment. I mean, it was it was incredible. You, you bring it out and you kind of and, and you make it. You bring it out in such a way that's kind of like poo pooed. Like it's not really a big deal. I'm telling you, it's not. It's exactly. not even. Exactly. But it becomes a big deal when you don't say anything and it comes out on cross. It's like, oh wow. Exactly. And the biggest I, and I thought one of the biggest mistakes made by this prosecutor was in his opening statement where he talked about the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum, and he described it this way. You ready? This, I mean, he said something to the effect of, Kyle Rittenhouse is chasing Joseph Rosenbaum and shoots him in the back. And, and that's an image that is very clear. Like, everyone can see that. Someone's running away, you shoot him in the back. We've seen it many times, unfortunately. Uh, and then we start to see the videos. And every video, beginning with the video shown during the defense opening statement, is that... It is Joseph Rosenbaum who is clearly pursuing Kyle Rittenhouse, and he's not like running away from him. The, the bullet may have entered his back because of the way everyone was sort of contorted at that at the moment of the shooting, and there's more than one shot that is fired. But it's clearly not the picture that the prosecutor painted. And to me, that's just misleading. Why would you undermine your own credibility that way with the first thing you tell this jury when you know it's not true? Not only the first thing you tell the jury, the most important thing you tell this jury. And I, Vinny, I've been sitting watching this trial, waiting to see video of Kyle chasing Joseph Rosenbaum. I still haven't seen it, you know, and you're exactly right. The fact that I haven't seen it, 
completely changes the way I look at the prosecutors. I look at anything they're telling us and anything they're showing us. It just, I, I don't understand it. I, you don't make those claims and then don't back it up in your case. You just don't do it. Now, I want to, I just want to finish this segment by playing a little bit of the cross-examination because to me, it's like a microphone drop moment uh, as it goes to the shooting of Gage Grosskreutz and whether or not this is self-defense. Take a listen. That's a photo of you, yes? Yes. Okay. Um, that's Mr. Rittenhouse? Correct. Okay. Now, you'd agree your firearm is pointed at Mr. Rittenhouse, correct? Yes. Okay. And once your firearm is pointed at Mr. Rittenhouse, that's when he fires his gun. Yes? No. Sir, look, I don't want to... Does this look like right now your arm is being shot? That looks like my bicep being vaporized, yes. Okay. And it's being vaporized as you're pointing your gun directly at him. Yes? Yes. Okay, so when you were standing three to five feet from him with your arms up in the air, he never fired, right? Correct. It wasn't until you pointed your gun at him, advanced on him, with your gun, now your hands down, pointed at him, that he fired, right? Correct. There you go. I I, I, I I don't know what you do with that as the prosecutor, but we'll see. You know, closing arguments, sometimes you, you move the evidence around a little bit and you, you point out something that's not obvious to us at this point, but we'll see how that goes. When we come back, folks, Michael Ayala staying with us, we're going to talk about the other huge trial, which has uh, begun down in Brunswick, Georgia, the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery. Three defendants, one victim, and one really important video. We'll take a listen to the opening statements when we return. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. And what does Travis McMichael say? And this is at the very beginning of his statement. So this is, he's, he's been read his Miranda rights, he's sitting down with the officers, he's talking to them, and this is the very first thing, kind of, he starts describing it. He comes up to that driveway, squares up with me, I put, you know, I shoot. Squares up with me. Squares up with me. And don't get me wrong, ladies and gentlemen. During the rest of his statement, Travis McMichael goes on to say that Mr. Arbery attacked him. Okay, he goes on to say that I was acting in self-defense. He goes on to describe his thought process while they were struggling over the shotgun, that Mr. Arbery was gonna get the shotgun away from him, and that if Mr. Arbery did, he'd get shot. Okay, but remember, this is two hours later at the police station. That is part of the opening statement from the prosecution in the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery murder trial that we're covering on court TV. The defense for the defendants is, is kind of twofold, but a big part of it will be self-defense, just as in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Uh, Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor, back with me. Uh, Michael, one thing that, that struck me about that part of the opening statement, and one reason I wanted to play it was um, there's always 
Um, I think a danger for prosecutors in a self-defense case to be too defensive. And, and so, you know, you're like, you're, you're trying to, okay, I get it. You want to, you want to show this jury that this was not justified, that this was not self-defense. And I understand the burden, but we're already in the opening statement, we're getting into the defendant's statements. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of dangerous. I don't like, I don't, I want to hear the defendant's statements live on the witness stand if I'm the prosecutor. That's the only way I want the jury to hear it because I want to cross-examine them myself. Myself. Why? Why were they doing that, Michael? Yeah, I think I think I agree with you 100 percent there. And I thought the same thing. Um, it's almost as if by highlighting those statements, you're suggesting or signposting to the jury that you're worried about them, that, that, that they're dangerous to your case in some way. And so you want to address them right off the top. And I get that. Uh, but I agree with you. I think there's plenty of time in the trial to address that. I didn't think that was something that should have been brought out in that way in opens. Um, and I think there's been some of that. There's been some of that throughout the trial. But by and large, I think Donikowski and her team have done a fantastic job trying this Ar Arbery case. Um, I think they've been well prepared. I think they have a, a, a very strong theme. Her theme, um, which is something that was completely lacking as far as I'm concerned, in the um, in the Rittenhouse trial, I still don't know what their exact theme is. Um, but the theme was that they made decisions and made poor decisions in their driveways to go and get this young man. And and I think that has given some shape and some um, a direction for just about everything they've done. Every direct examination the, the prosecution has done has been directed towards showing that these were the wrong decisions that they made. And I think that's super important. So I think while I agree with you, there were perhaps a misstep or two, and we can always look back and find ways to talk about uh, the way these these attorneys handle these cases. Uh, I think by and large, Linda Dukowski and her team ha have done a really wonderful job. Yeah, I think it's a, a personal uh, problem I have. I, I With self-defense cases and, and prosecutors, I want them in their case in chief to really just prove the murder prove the murder case and, 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 and lay out everything that they did wrong. And then when they put on their case and they uh, try to allege self-defense, come back in your rebuttal case and just flatten them. But don't kind of hem in, into it. Don't try to dip your toe into it too well. You don't have to. You, you don't have to. I mean, especially in this. And I think that theme was great, that it was, a, it was uh, driveway decisions and, and, and bad assumptions that were made um, by these guys. And to me, it's so obvious. I mean, just just the image of three men in two pickup trucks, one's on the back, on the on the on the bed of the pickup truck and two of them have guns and they're chasing this guy all around for five minutes. I mean, all of it is so powerful. Vinny, I hear that the over and images over from themselves. people and I hate to cut you off, but I hear that over and over. But let's remember. People looked at that video and didn't think that anything was wrong with it. There's that last minute confrontation. A lot of people, Vinny, a lot of people believe that Ahmad Arbery should have just stopped. And the fact that he didn't stop, right, um, created the situation. He's the one that sort of instigated the ultimate final confrontation. He was the aggressor. There are a lot of people who look at that video. You know, you're online. There's a lot of people who see that video differently. So uh, why? 
while I agree with you that the video is devastating, I'm not sure that I can assume that if I'm trying the case. Well, the, the other part of it is, is to get the jury out of the McMichael's heads in your opening statement and have them be in the mind of Ahmad Arbery. And you're, you're running through a neighborhood and there's some strangers you don't know following you in a pickup truck and you change directions and they're still following you. And you, you, you're about to get away and then a second truck comes out. Who are these people? Why are they following? What are they doing? They're screaming at me. They're screaming at me. And, and then when I can't get out and they've blocked the road, I see they've got guns. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to turn my back to a man who's pointing a gun at me? I mean, all of that, it, to me, it, it, it's not, don't make the case more complicated. Make it very streamlined, straight, powerful uh, about all these facts that are, because all these, these are all the facts that everyone was telling me about. And when I say everyone, I mean like friends and neighbors, whether, whether it's uh, walking down the street, they know what I do for a living. They say, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? And and that's what, the, that's what they were focused on. Somebody's running through a neighborhood and and, and some yahoos are chasing well, maybe, maybe them. To be, fair, to be fair. There, they did do that in their open. I, I remember coming away from when they finished their opening, the prosecution, that is, thinking they painted a very nice picture of this young man feeling hunted down by these guys. So let's not make it sound like they leave didn't it there. do that. I think they did it. No, no, but leave it there. Leave it there. I mean, you think that was enough? I think that is enough. Some sometimes you're afraid it's such a big case. I've got make the big case, make it small, make it simple. I mean, because this is a simple story ultimately. And we, and we all can read between the lines on what is going on here. And I, and I don't think it'll be lost on the jury. Then once you get into it and they start, let them raise those issues. And if they want to raise those issues, then you come right back at them with everything that you have. But at, at the end of the day, my biggest pet peeve is, is allowing their defense to get in front of the jury without them testifying. To me, that it's a big, big, big mistake. Let's listen to more of the opening statement because you're right. It, and what I do like about the prosecution is the passion. I think they have a great passion, which which sometimes can be missed for prosecutors. And I think sometimes you absolutely need that. Let's take a listen. Now, when he yelled this at Mr. Arbery is unclear because it's not what he's saying on his 911 call. So we don't know exactly when Greg McMichael said to Mr. Arbery, stop, I'll blow your head off. But that's what Greg McMichael said to Mr. Arbery. How do we know? He told the police he said it. Ladies and gentlemen, the video is a small part of a bigger picture. You ever go by those construction sites where they have the big fences up and they've got the, um, the tarp and everything? And then sometimes the tarp flaps back so you can kind of see what's happening inside? Okay, that's what the video is. It's showing you only a little part of the attack on Maude Arbery. It's a much bigger picture. It's assumptions and driveway decisions. Mr. Arbery ran away from them for five minutes, up and down Burford. Then four times Mr. Ryan tries to hit him with his pickup truck. He's redirected up homes. Again, I, I have to pick on the prosecutor here. I don't want this video to be a small part of the picture. That's the defense. 
The defense to this is this video is a small part of the picture. The, the rest of the picture is everything that's been going on in the neighborhood. Oh, we've got a crime wave. Oh, $2,500 worth of stuff was stolen. Oh, he was reaching into his pocket. He had a gun. Oh, oh the, the, the video is, it is, it, to me, the video is the biggest part of the case. Don't minimize it, uh, prosecution, please. Uh, Michael, do you agree? I agree on one one count, not the other. Of course, it's the same. He'll never totally agree with me, folks. He'll never <laughs> totally agree with me. I always agree in part because you're always saying something interesting. Um, but no, here, here, here's what here's what what I I saw. Um, Again, I think that was an acknowledgement to the fact that there were people who looked at that video and did not think that it rose to the level of murder. And I think she need in order for them to truly understand those people who might be on the fence. Um, and you got to remember, she's got a jury of 11 white folks and one black person. Right. So this this comes into play. You got to understand where you are. These are folks coming from a different county. They're coming from a much larger uh, section or county uh, in the Georgia area, coming to a place which is a much smaller county, uh, you know, much more sort of uh, uh, open to different ideas, I'll say. And so they have to recognize that. And so what she's saying is, yes, the video is awful. And she does a great job, I thought, of explaining what was going through the mind of Arbery as he's being sort of hunted down by these men. But in order for the true understanding of what you're seeing in that video to truly have an impact on you, you've got to understand the entire background of how they got there. Once you get that in place, then the context for the video is there and you truly understand the horror. And I think that's where she was going with it. So I understand what you're saying, but I think there is a bigger picture that even makes the video more devastating. And that's where she was coming from. Well, we'll see how all that plays out. Now, the defense, it was interesting because the defense has three defendants. So each one gets an opportunity to give an opening statement. So, you know, it's yes, all defendants are on trial at the same time. Prosecutors usually like that and they prefer that. They don't want to try the case three times. They don't want one defendant to be on trial and then point the finger at the two other people who aren't in the courtroom at that time. They'd rather have them just point at each other while they're in the courtroom. So I understand all of that. Um, but in this case, it was interesting. Kevin Goff, the attorney for Roddy Bryant, the one who didn't have a gun, but instead had his cell phone uh, recording everything on the camera, he chose not to give an opening statement. And he reserved his right to do it at the end of the state's case. And I actually think this was brilliant uh, maneuvering by Goff on, on two, two levels. Number one, they already are, are going to hear two opening statements from the defense. Do you really need to hear a third? And it gives him an opportunity to separate himself from those two guys and see what happens during the state's case and kind of like hedge on what your case actually is going to be. Uh, were you shocked that Goff uh, pulled that out at the last minute? Because he didn't give us any indication when I spoke to him that he might do that. No, no, um, he didn't give any indication. And, and I think shock would be the wrong word. It's just not something you expect, right? You, you just don't expect it. But when he pulled it out, I thought the same thing you did. Here I am agreeing with you. Look at that. Let's, let's mark the date here. Bingo. Because, <laughs> 
and, and it, of course it has to do with something a defense attorney did, but um, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I thought it was a stroke of genius. And I, I heard a couple of people um, criticize the choice, but I thought, again, you're exactly right. He needs to separate himself from the other two. One thing I noticed consistently during Wadir, the first couple of questions they would ask these people are, you know, what are your, do you have negative thoughts towards Travis? Do you have negative thoughts towards Greg McMichael? Do you have negative thoughts towards Roddy? And consistently the numbers were much higher for Travis and Greg than they were towards Roddy. We monitor social media. Folks on social media consistently saying, well, I don't think Roddy should be found guilty of murder. What did he do? Not fully understand felony murder at that point. But at the end of the day, the point I'm making is people do see them differently. And I think it was a stroke of genius for him to separate himself from them because he has to take advantage of the fact that people see him differently. And you're right. By waiting till after the prosecution's case, he can see how this case, which by and large is going to be about Travis and Greg and what they did, mostly Travis, he can then maneuver his opening to focus on on the aspects that he heard that are negative towards his client and build a case from there in terms of how he's going to approach the defense of Roddy Bryan. So I agree with you. I think it was a stroke of genius. So I think you're right. I think this trial is going to be about uh, Greg McMichael and Travis McMichael. Greg McMichael, because he's the one who starts the whole chase. He's the one who's on his front yard and sees Ahmaud Arbery um, running and, and yells to his son to grab his gun and get in the truck. I mean, he's the one who makes the decision. He gets everything in motion that day. Uh, but ultimately, his son Travis is the one who fires uh, the, the fatal shots. So let's listen uh, to the defense opening statement here, talking about Travis McMichael and, and why he grabbed his shotgun that day. They grabbed their guns. Now, why did Travis McMichael grab his shotgun? Because... 12 days earlier, he confronts this guy, trying to help Larry English, and this guy reaches into his pocket like he has a gun. So he grabs his shotgun for self-protection. And he gets in the car, or he walks out in the yard actually, and he sees Matt Albenzi motioning down the street. Same direction Ahmaud Arbery was running in. Gets in the car, his dad gets in the, in the truck, I'm sorry, I say car, it's a truck, Ford F-150, and climbs into the car seat because when seconds count, the police are often minutes away. The police are not going to catch this guy at the speed he's running. So they're going to try to detain him for the police. What happens after that is up to the police. So there's the, the setup. There's the citizen's arrest setup that the the motivation for all of this was to detain this guy who they suspected was committing a series of crimes in their neighborhood. Um, you know, if the jury you know follows this pathway and in, in some way buys it and says, OK, this was a valid attempted citizen's arrest. Then the case becomes all about self-defense. But if this jury doesn't believe this was a valid attempted citizen's arrest, then it's over for the defense because then they're committing a felony and he dies during the course of their conduct while committing that felony by chasing him and trying to trap him. 
and detain them. Exactly. And that's why that's why during their openings, they couldn't just rely on the video because they understood that in order to make that video um, basically irrelevant. Right. Because it really is only important to the defense as far as um, it being a self-defense case. They have to get this jury to understand that this 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 idea that that these two men initially with the addition of Roddy a little later um, was not an invalid action by those guys. They had no right to go after him, no right to detain him, no right to perform a citizen's arrest based on the definition of citizen's arrest at the time. Um, there's a secondary level that that concerns me on this citizen's arrest law that requires, if you think a felony has been committed, a reasonable suspicion, which sounds similar to a probable cause. Um, this defense has an area ripe for, for challenge there um, in terms of if they can show that with all these other factors, the fact that there was this confrontation and he did look like he went for a gun. There were these other crimes. They had seen him on the video doing various things, none of them criminal uh, per se, other than the trespass itself. Uh, but if they can convince this jury that there was the suspicion was reasonable, right? Then they can find themselves in a real good position. So I think that's where the defense is going there. They want to continue to pound home to this jury that all the assumptions that were made were reasonable, making the stop reasonable, making it appropriate. And then we'll talk about self-defense. And, you know, that's a whole nother ball of wax. Absolutely. And the trial is is underway and it's on Court TV, gavel to gavel coverage. Michael Ayala every day from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard time. Michael, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Vinny. Thanks again. All right. When we come back, I'm going to talk about the key for both sides in both trials. How does either side or both sides, what is the key to winning these cases? Well, I'll talk about it. And and I think it's very similar for both sides in both trials. That when we return. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So these two trials are very similar in that they're self-defense cases. Um, they're similar in the, in the fact that they are very high profile. It puts a little bit of pressure on the attorneys involved because they know the world is watching both of them. But there is a, a, a key for both sides in both trials to winning these cases because I don't think it's, it's necessarily a done deal for either one of them. I, I think the, the case in Kenosha kind of leans a little bit more towards the defense. I think the case in Brunswick leans a little bit more towards the prosecution. Um, but that's just my assessment of the, of the evidence and the way things are going so far. Things can drastically change. Uh, but I think the key for both sides is how they frame the issues for the jury. How it's framed, how this jury takes all the evidence and then analyzes the case and and what they're looking at and and their perspective for understanding and trying to figure out what happened. And I think what each side has to do is put someone on trial. Now, Now, the way it works, right, there are criminal defendants in both cases, 
In one case, there's three criminal defendants down in Brunswick, Georgia, the McMichaels, Travis and Greg, and Ronnie Bryan, and there's one defendant in Kenosha, Kyle Rittenhouse. But in a self-defense case, you have to remember, by alleging self-defense, you are saying it's a justified action by you and that you are the victim in the case. Okay? I know it sounds kind of weird because um, there are dead people here. But in a self-defense case, you are not saying that the, the, the person that you killed is the victim. You are the victim. You had to act. Your actions were justified. Okay? So really what each side has to do is make sure the other side is, on, is the side that's on trial. For Kyle Rittenhouse, he's got to put three people on trial. Rosenbaum. Grosskreutz and Anthony Huber and make the jury focus on their actions and what they did. Meanwhile, the prosecution obviously has got to get the focus of the jury on what Kyle Rittenhouse did, his actions and his decisions that he made. And yes, the jury may consider both, but think about it. It's the way we talk about and think about trials. It's like, who's really on trial here? Well, in a self-defense case, Whoever ends up on trial probably will be the loser in the case. At least, at least the way the jury perceives and analyzes the facts in the case and, and where they put their focus. Is the focus on the actions of, the, of, the, the, of Rosenbaum? Is it on the actions of Huber with the skateboard? Rosenbaum, who's chasing him? Grosskreutz, who's pointing his pistol at Rittenhouse? Or is the focus on Rittenhouse carrying that big AR-15 and, and shooting first, asking questions later? Depending on which way the jury is looking at this case, I think we'll go a long way towards who's going to win the case. Then you go down to Brunswick, Georgia, it's the same thing. The defense clearly trying to put Ahmad Arbery, the one who was shot and killed, on trial. What was he doing? Why was he doing it? Why was he in the neighborhood? Why is he going into that house under construction? Why is he running away? Why, why is his hand on, on Roddy Bryan's truck? Why, when he goes around the front of the, of the, of the uh, pickup truck, does he run towards Travis McMichael? Why doesn't he run away from him again? That's putting Ahmad Arbery on trial. And if the jury is focused on all of those actions, the defense has a much better ch opportunity and, and chance to win. But if it's the other way, and, and the focus of the jury is, well, why, are, why are these guys grabbing their guns? Why are they in their pickup trucks chasing this kid around for five minutes? Why is Roddy Bryan even in, in, in the chase? He doesn't even know the McMichaels. And if that's the analysis the jury does, then prosecution has a much better chance of winning. So that's, that's really the key, the way you frame the issues. And, and that a lot of that can be done during the course of the trial. It begins with your opening statement, which is why I said uh, what I said uh, in my analysis of what they're doing in the Arbery case. Keep the focus on the actions, what they did. And, and, and the perception of the victim of, of what these people are doing to them. Like, why is this guy pointing a gun at me? And you're focusing on the actions of the other side. So we'll see. Closing arguments is the, is the final opportunity to marshal all the evidence and put it all together uh, for this jury. And that's how you bring a case home. And I've seen things turn during the closing argument, so it can happen. Uh, I think most people agree that opening statements 
kind of set the framework and, and the filter for the way the jury sees a case. And cases are many times that the, the first impression is the lasting impression, but it's never too late. In the closing argument, you put it together the, the correct way. Um, you can you can win a case that you've been losing all along. I've seen it happen. Anyway, folks, if you want to see it happen, you've got to watch Court TV, your front row seat to justice. We are a television network, not just a podcast. Um, you can watch these trials. We're, we're covering both at the same time. You can check us out on air. You can check us out online, courttv.com. Um, and then you can check the show notes here. We'll have uh, have links to all the big moments uh, from these really big cases. So uh, make sure you do that. These are these are two cases that I don't know what the what the uh, result is going to be. I don't think anyone knows, and and they're important cases for 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 many many different reasons. And what happened uh, in our country because both cases go back to uh, 2020 when our when our nation changed and our criminal justice system changed and these are two of those big cases along with of course uh, the death of George Floyd that that changed a lot of things in the way we see things so i appreciate your time i am vinny politan you can watch my show every night 8 to 11 on court tv have a great week and as always don't forget to hug the kids this podcast is a production of court tv Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.